I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Who is number one? You are number six. Welcome, everybody. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Memories Gone By, a summer replacement series in America of a British TV show that captivates over, my goodness, over 50 years now of The Prisoner. That, of course, is the late, great Patrick McGowan in our drop to start the show. And yes, we are all our own number one. We are an individual, free men, free women, and free to discuss whatever it is that comes to mind, especially so when we have our fine lady and a guest for how many times now? Today is number nine. Number nine. Outstanding. And of course, we're talking about Becky Walsh. We will bring her on momentarily. But first, let's say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, sir? Doing very well. That's all I got. Short and sweet. Okay. That's all you got? It doesn't sound like you at all. Who are you and what did you do with Benny? Exactly. Yeah. For my next trick. (laughs) That is wonderful. Well, I just want to get this out there. We can't wait for the release of the Kraken. That's coming next season. I am so excited. Seattle rejoices in NHL hockey. Our Tampa Bay Lightning, as Suzanne and I live about an hour away from Tampa, Florida, here in Sarasota. They're in the final four. The final four. We'll see if they can go back to back as NHL. NHL Stanley Cup champions. That's going to be fascinating. And other than that, we're looking forward to a nice mellow weekend. Getting hot and humid here. Benny, how is it in Seattle? Cool, calm, perfect. Nice. <laughs> Maybe a bit cloudy. Nothing wrong with that. A little that. bit. You want to see? <laughs> I was going to turn this around. There you go. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Oh, yeah. That's that's what I recall. Yep. Okay. Thank you for that. Wow. A window on the world. You're welcome. You know where else it can be cool and cloudy? London. And ah. people from London say Seattle reminds them of London. Why would that be? Why don't we ask our guest? Becky Walsh has been an author, teacher, consultant, speaker, and workshop leader in the field of intuition and spirituality for many years. She's the author of five books, including the Amazon bestseller, Advanced Psychic Development. She's best known for having presented and produced her own award-winning weekly radio show in London and has made regular TV and live appearances featuring intuition and comedy. I love that. Her website is beckywalsh.com. We'll be sure to give that out once again before the end of the hour. And this is in in our 14 plus years on air. This is Becky's ninth visit. Welcome to Manson Mitchell once again, Becky Walsh. Oh, I love being here. Thank you so much. It's really good to see you. And uh, yeah, and normally it's a voice down the line. And we've met in person, which was great. And now, you know, we, due to the power of uh, technology, we can see each other, which is great. I love that. I've said many times, we do not meet most of our guests in person. We only meet them on the radio. And generally, we never even see them. But now since 2021, we're on Zoom. So we do get to see our guests. And you are one of a handful of people that we've met in person, broke bread with, and had a great conversation one afternoon. And uh, and we love talking with you because you make our show international. <laughs> there we go. How, 
I'll do my best Mary Poppins voice for you, just to make it really international. <laughs> Excellent. And as a matter of fact, there's a bit going on in England, Cornwall specifically, today. <laughs> President Joe Biden is over there. And let's start with this, Becky. There seems to be a decidedly different tone this time around because Suzanne and I voted for Joe Biden, and we regard him as a healer and a uniter to the extent it is possible. And I hope that is playing out in England. And it seems that Boris Johnson has been warmly welcoming toward the Bidens, which we very much appreciate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so he said today that we had an, indes- I think the words were indestructible friendship with the US. And I, I would agree with that. I think we have. My, my only concern is the size of Joe Biden's car. And I don't know if you've ever been to Cornwall, but the, the streets are tiny. He's going he's gonna to take out some country walls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you go to Cornwall, I mean, literally, you can, you sort of, you know, you have to kind of like pull over at certain points to let other other cars go by. And of course, I'm sure that he's going to have a massive entourage, like a, like a caravan of vehicles. And the British vehicles are tiny, you know. I mean, you know, the, the size of the US vehicles, we called them a caravan. You know, that that's a mobile home. You call it a yes. car. Yes. Um, so <laughs> yes. Your road is so much bigger than ours. Um, so there's been lots of uh, lots of comedy about that. About um, oh my goodness, how's he going to go down the roads in Cornwall? Um, but I think it, I think it is exciting, and um, I think you know um, I, I do like my politics. I do find it quite fascinating, and I do like looking at what's going on in the world. Um, but certainly, there's some, been some really good news about the uh, percentage of vaccines that are going to be coming from the, the US and the UK, because unless we're all safe, nobody's safe. Um, uh, I'm, I'm funny about, about the vaccine conversation. I'm probably not the best person to have it with. Um, but I, I do think that it needs to be equal across the world, that everybody has the same opportunity for health. So let's, uh, yes. let's hope that happens. I, I understand it's going to be one billion uh, vaccines. Yeah. And so, you know, that that should help things along. And uh, I, I've also heard that, you know, some of these variants are becoming very strong, looking like we're going to need booster shots and all of that. So this is not quite as over as I would hoped it would have been by now, but um, we've survived this far with it. I was very curious in Cornwall about a G seven structure which i don't know if you saw on tv it's uh it's made out of electronics and it it, it's like a mount rushmore of cornwall with seven heads of the people of g7 over the years and and the representative for the united states was ronald reagan uh so it it must have been there for some time but but an extraordinarily (laughs) funny funny uh, sculpture, sculpture made out of all electronic stuff. So, I love that. I haven't yeah. seen that. That's crazy. I live here. What am I doing? I, <laughs> I didn't even know it was there. Well, wow. you're not probably not tuned into the TV as often as we are. So there you go. We live with it all day. <laughs> that gives me an opening. Uh, thank you, Suzanne and Becky. Let me say this, and I'm extemporizing, folks. So let me attempt to be brief here. I mentioned Patrick McGowan in a famous quote from a TV series, 17 episodes and all. That's the whole thing. The Prisoner. It aired in America in the summer of 1967. 
And then it was so popular, it was repeated by the network CBS in 1968 with one notable addition. And that brings me to our topic of news and what did you see and did you see and where did you see it? When did you know it? There was an episode of that famous series, The Prisoner, that was called The General. Now, in 1967, we were still mired in Vietnam. America had uh, people pouring into the streets, massive protest, a great deal of turmoil, which, of course, was duly noted by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, who took advantage of that for propagandistic purposes, because if you're in a war, that's what you do. This episode, The General, was not permitted to be aired by order of the Lyndon Johnson administration. So the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, pulled the plug on that for purposes of this summer show. The general had a plot in which, stated briefly, number six, caught in this place, former secret agent, and he's held by who, for what purpose, he's trying to figure it out and escape. The general involved a, an history, a history class for historical perspective, you could sit in your home, virtually a cell, and you could watch TV and there would be this professor by tapping in rather hypnotically, it seemed, getting into your subconscious and pouring all of this language that had to do with history lessons and winners write history. And down to the, the minutest detail, this was presented to you in a way that was very difficult to shake, but very easy to repeat, to regurgitate. And the question behind the episode was, who is telling you what, for which purpose, and how do the powers that be pour all of this into your consciousness? They get into your head, in other words. The Lyndon Johnson administration nixed the airing of that particular episode because it was thought it would be too injurious to our national morale in wartime. Must not be able to think freely or to question who writes history. Well, as we know, it's the winners. But in 1968, once Lyndon Johnson had said he would not run for re-election and the political campaign was heating up, uh, and this was aired after the assassination of Robert Kennedy, as a matter of fact, and people were questioning everything, the general was allowed to be played. And when you watch it, you think, courtesy of Patrick McGowan, whose brainchild the prisoner was, you think, my God, I don't know whom I can trust to tell me what I need to know. And long before spin, here was somebody speaking authoritatively about something that reflected their view of the world and their view of history. I see echoes of that, Becky, today. Where do you get your news? Whom do you believe and what do you believe? And look at how it plays out in our national politics and even internationally. It's huge. And it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. And my, my first realization of this was when I was traveling through Australia and I was, I was living in Australia and they celebrate a thing called Anzac's Day. And I stupidly- Can you repeat that? What is that? Uh, yeah, exactly. How do you Anzac's spell Day. that? How do you oh, spell that? I'll have to look that up actually to okay. be able to spell it for you because I don't know if the top of my head, but I can, I can talk and Google search at the same time. Uh, um, so it was called Anzac's Day. Anzac's. And I was kind of like, 
I was kind of like, what, what's that? And everybody turns to me and kind of goes, I can't believe. So Anzac, so it's A-N-Z-A, uh, sorry, A-N-Z-A-C. Uh, so Anzac. So if you're an Anzac, what this was, was um, that it's a, it's a day commemorating an incident that happened during the war. And forgive me, if I, and this is how much I don't know if it was First or Second World War, but um, Australian troops, a huge amount of the Australian popu male population in particular, um, had gone over to Turkey and they were told that they had to climb up this rock face from the beach. And at a certain point, the British allies would, would go over, bomb, and then they were to go over the top and finish the job. Well, we didn't come and we didn't come and we didn't come and we didn't come and they they dug themselves into the rocks, which is where the Australian word digger comes from. You know, when they kind of go Sheila and digger. And so this is where digger comes from. And what, what ended up happening was they were told to go over the top and then we came and we bombed them. And huge amounts, I mean, you couldn't even, you couldn't even describe, huge amounts of Australian men were killed by friendly fire. Um, oh. I was not taught about this at school. I'm British, yeah. I wasn't taught about it at school. So when I'm over in Australia and this, you know, commemorating Anzac Day, and I say, what's Anzac Day? I mean, you can imagine the horror that, that they felt that I didn't know. And that, that was the first point where I started to question the things that we were taught in school. And now if you look at um, black history and how black people have actually been taken out of war photos, that we don't see that, we don't see the Asian people who were fighting. Um, and now, especially in the UK, there's, a, there's a, an uprising, uprising and partly due to Black Lives Matter, where these things are being um, really talked about and investigated and war graves being um, uh, erected just to try and correct this sort of balance like you say you know that that where do we get our history from and it was interesting when I when I was writing the book you do know which is you do know um learn to act on intuition instantly I couldn't finish it there was something really blocking that the end of this book and what I did was I took a bit of a risk and, and I did a shamanic journey um with a shaman and I took ayahuasca and in order to kind of channel and open up my consciousness to be able to create the ending of the book and whether or not you're a fan of that kind of that kind of methodology uh, or not um what came to me in a kind of like it's like a hypnotic sort of state what came to me was that people really needed to to read my book not at the time it was published but in two to five years time which um was about three years ago and what I understood was that it was now more important than ever that people became intuitive. If it, I mean, we are all intuitive, but started to trust themselves and their own discernment when it comes to reading other people. Because it seems to me that it's more of a faux pas to call someone a liar nowadays than it is to be one. And so... I think it's profoundly important that you watch the news with your intuition, that you have conversations with your intuition, especially at the moment when there's so much misinformation about. And so I think, yes, you're absolutely right that where do we get our information from? Where does our history come from? And even the people who are telling us things that they believe wholeheartedly could be coming from a place, you know, so this is how social media, I know I'm going on, but you, you, you picked a pet peeve. Um, but, uh, you know, this is how um, social media 
get you to believe things because the people you love are sharing it. The people who you trust are sharing it. So if it came from a particular source, I might think, well, I don't trust that source. But if it's come from somebody who I think is amazing and, and I think is intelligent and smart and clever, then A, I'm more likely to believe it, but also more likely to propagate it as well. And I think they are well aware of that within our human psychology. Wow, that is very interesting, the fact that the powers that be are well aware of that. The same thing is going on in the United States as is going on in England, and that has to do with what is being taught in school as history, um, especially as it relates to our uh, Black citizens. And there are whole states that are, are saying that they will not teach uh, anything about racism, and they're somehow getting away with it. There's lawsuits going on. Teachers are getting sued because they're talking about the systemic racism in the United States. There are some places exactly the opposite that have not been uh, revealing everything, like you say, like this Anzacs, and they are now talking about what has happened a hundred years ago there was a a town with a at least 300 deaths in it that was an extremely successful black town in in uh, Tulsa very very successful they used to call it the black wall street people there were thriving and doing well and the whites came in and burned the whole thing to the ground and killed a bunch of people and the, the whole town went under. That was 100 years ago, and they are talking about it today, 100 years later. This is what happened 100 years ago. There are states that are saying, well, we're not going to teach that. That's not in our curriculum. And there are other states that are saying, we will teach that. This has come to our attention, and, and that needs to be shown. Gary and I have often said, you know, throw a little sunlight on things because the truth is eventually going to come out. You know, you can hide things and lie about things for only so long, but eventually I think the truth always comes out. I mean, do you think something can be hidden forever, Becky? Or do you also think the truth has to be revealed? I really believe that the truth has to be revealed. I think I think the problem is is in the in the programming of our psychology, we've lost the capacity to see ourselves as white. And I know that sounds like it, huh? but I think that white people see white to be normal and everything else to be other, and and that's what we're taught. That's how we're programmed. And 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 that undoing of the perception of whiteness, I think, is where it sort of starts. But you can't, it's a very difficult thing to do. So I, within within my life at the moment, what I've done is I have my business, which is the BeckyWalsh.com stuff, but I realised that it's all very well sort of talking about these things and teaching these things, but unless you're actually doing something about it, what good actually are you? You know, there's lots of sort of speakers in personal development and coaches and things like that. So I decided I wanted to be on the front line of transformation, not just transforming people, but transforming a town. So I took a job for the local council as their communications and marketing officer. Um, it's only a part-time job, but um, due to myself and working alongside the council we've declared the council an anti-racist council the main reason for doing that is because 
we need to open the doors to education within the council itself, because every organisation that is steeped in history is also steeped in, in, in institutionalised racism, down to the fact that we've never had a black mayor, for example, in the town. So all of those things need um, looking at and analysing along with the policies that councils create. Um, so through doing that, we've been having uh, meetings with um, the, the Polish community, the BAME community and the Bangladesh community um, and bringing them all together in meetings and being able to actually really discuss what's needed and we've decided that we're going to create educational panels and um, particularly led by um, because this is the thing with anti-racism learning in institutions that is taught by a white teacher to a room full of white people yeah <laughs> it, it really doesn't work it, it you really can't see it so we're we're bringing in um black teachers we're bringing in asian teachers to be able to actually uh, lead and explain what it is and how it feels which is the most important thing and to bring out that um, the the history uh, side of it and um, one one of my friends who's just got an mbe He's been um, looking at the Windrush um, situation that we had in the UK and really pulling that apart because, again, there's so, so much of that was lost in history and, and the outrage of that where uh, people who were invited over to the UK um, were, you know, in order to help supporters after the war, um, then even just recently were told, oh, you don't have the right paperwork to live here because they weren't given the right paperwork off the get-go. I, it's it's an outrage it's an absolute outrage but yes i do believe that you're absolutely right bringing in a bit of sunlight into into all of that is so important i do think the conversation comes first um when there's no conversation when people are thinking things but not talking about it i think that's a little bit worse than having the conversation and then you are correct or i agree with you that after some conversation, what is the action? What, what, is, what is there to be done? There was a, a gentleman who was interviewed, a, a white man who was talking to a black reporter during uh, a lot of the rioting that was going on following the many, many deaths of black people here. And, uh, and the white man said, I Googled, what can a white man do for Black Lives Matter? And, and the reporter said, well, and, and he said, I, I don't know, but I'm interested in making things better. I, I want to do something that's going to make things better. Mm. And, um, and, and so I, I think that um, just turning around an attitude, having an open conversation and turning around an attitude is at least a small step in the right direction. And then- so I and then what action plans can you put together? Oh, exactly what we're looking into. And I, I did a course called How to Be an Ally. Um, and it was really interesting. And I think when you're saying what you're saying about that conversation, it's so important because you don't know what you know until you don't know it. And um, what you were saying, Gary, about um, where we get our information from. One of the things that that we understand about unconscious bias 
is the fact that if you're black, you can also have unconscious bias against other black people. And as a woman, especially a British woman, um, women have unconscious bias against other women. And, and you can find this sort of like female misogyny, which is really quite, quite alarming when you come across it. And, um, and I know I've been the victim of it. And I know that I have to be very conscious of my own programming around other women. Um, so I asked a question at the how to be an ally. And, and, I, and it was a, a really innocent question, but it was a real clangor of a question. Now I look back and I said, but can't black people be racist against other black people? And they, you know, in psychology terms, due to unconscious bias, then then isn't that a thing? And they said, yes, but it's about power. And and this is the, the, the number one thing is it is about power, because if you're black and you're racist against black people, you don't have any power. So it's like, how can that actually be an ill effect? So it's about power. And I think that historically, why we've been taught what we've been taught is because the, posi- the, the positions of power, whether that be um, a class related power, whether that might be that somebody who is, you know, quite wealthy wants to stay in that position of power um, and the hierarchy of the worker bees and the lords of the manor, you know, what we call in the UK serfs and lords, you know, if, if it's that, um, then of course you're going to be programmed with a way of thinking to keep you in your position in society and to keep everybody in that kind of like uh, place and I think that the dishevelment of your own power understanding where you have power and where you can empower not have power over but give power to I think is 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 a start it starts with the conversation and it starts with how you can give your power to somebody else and and I'm sure like even with having a, a radio platform like like you have this conversation then empowers because the, the conversation in itself brings um information that people may may maybe not have thought about before and and that is a way of giving power away giving knowledge away is a way of giving power away so congratulations to you both <laughs> oh thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> when i received both of my vaccines both times when i got the vaccine they were given by non-white women I, I believe one, the second one was a black woman. The first one might've been a Spanish woman or a, Yes, or I believe she was Hispanic. Maybe Hispanic. So she was dark skinned, but she wasn't black. And, you know, I, I was in their care. And, and so I, you know, I sat down, my sleeve was rolled up and I was very aware that I was giving my care over to these two wonderful women, one on, you know, each of those days, who were not white, who were not like me. And, and so, you know, I, I hope that people really get that we, you know, diversity is here to stay. We are all one. And, you know, I don't know how long you want to fight this fight. It, it, and it is literally a, a fight about about power. And what's really odd in the UK is we, we have different class systems that are really prevalent. So we have, I would say, we have poor, working class, middle class, upper class, and they won't even talk to me. Um, so, <laughs> so super rich. And 
it's almost as if that um, the predominance of the people who are racist in the UK are uh, working class and the predominance of the people supporting Black Lives Matter are middle class. And to me, it almost seems like that yes. the working class are scared of the uprising because then they will be at the bottom rung of the ladder of the power dynamics. And whether or wow. not we consciously have that in our head, it's that, um, that need to always believe that there's somebody who's worse off than you that you're doing actually okay. And if there isn't anyone that's worse off than you, then suddenly it's a reflection on the fact that, uh, of you. So that again comes from that kind of like a, a, a sense of not having power and a lack of, uh, lack of powerment. But uh, yeah, it's a very, very interesting, very deep and very difficult subject. And one of my friends who's part of Black Lives Matter who, who lives where I do, she said, you'll never ever, ever get rid of racism. And my heart broke. My yeah, I really hope that's not true. I'd love to see that in my lifetime, like to to the point where everybody felt just as safe as I do to walk down the street. You know, well, within reason of the fact that I'm female, <laughs> but I'm I'm female, Tory, and I'm feisty. I feel fairly safe. <laughs> yes, I remember when there was somebody who was rather rude to you in line at the rail station, and you went full Emma Peel on his butt. <laughs> You remember that you talked about that on our show. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I do have that element. And um, my mother calls it northern parenting because uh, she said you're just parenting people. But the problem is, is I have been known to do it in a dressing gown at three o'clock in the morning, standing outside with no slippers on. Because I mean, if you put slippers on, you didn't care that much to be out in my dressing gown, telling somebody off for the amount of noise that they're making, like a group of kids and stuff. <laughs> people are trying to sleep <laughs> i just love this this is great we love it anytime becky walsh joins us and we need to keep a spot on the calendar i think quarterly would be nice so that you can sound off to your heart's content becky we have reached the time we're just a minute or two past our break time so let's sneak that in and on the other side of it well we have more questions and becky has spontaneous answers that give us a little thrill we're happy that you're tuned in to Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes back with more of Becky Walsh right here at the epicenter of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. More and more these days, it feels like sports are losing out to hype. Who dissed who? Who signed the fattest contract? Who got busted for cheating? Lost 2 is the unique capacity sports have to inspire us, to unite us. Well, great news, sports fans. Sports are still being played for the right reasons. They're still as entertaining as they are character building. You just have to know where to find it. 
and you only have to look as far as your local Washington High School. You know, the place where the games are exciting, concessions are affordable, and the parking is free. Where the emphasis is on hustle and heart instead of hype. If you prefer real, honest-to-goodness sport played for all the right reasons, you'll find it at your hometown high school, High School Sports. Games are being played this weekend at a Washington High School near you. Okay, everybody, who's in? This message presented by the Washington Interscholastic Activities Association and the Washington State Secondary Athletic Administrators Association. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Working hard to put a smile on your face. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Becky Walsh. Rocking the Casbah, as it were. She uh, she is from <laughs> England and has a website. And Becky, if our people want to connect with you or learn more about what it is you do, where's the best place for them to go? So, yep, so beckywalsh.com, definitely. Um, I'm on all of the socials, apart from TikTok, which I'm being persuaded into. But I'm also on Clubhouse as well, so this new app too. So Because I love radio and I love talking, clearly. Um, so uh, so I've got myself a, a, it's the Stand Up Intuitive Club on Clubhouse as well. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, that the Clash set it up nicely. Rock the Casbah. At one point, uh, the singer shouts out, Degenerate the Faithful! And that leads me to ask you, Becky, with your penchant for public performances and your ability to articulate a point of view, when you were doing your stage work, and it would be nice to set up a little background for the, in case those who are unaware, they'd be interested to hear, that you were a stand-up psychic. What a great conceptualization of who you are and what you do. A stand-up psychic. Now, if I'm a person who wants others to conform to my point of view, particularly in terms of obeying policy, I might look at a Becky Walsh as being rather subversive. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. So, um, so yeah, so, <laughs> so I think what happened was, uh, firstly, I never did future predictions, so that was quite sub subversive. What's the point of a psychic that doesn't do future predictions? But if you believe in the law of attraction and manifestation, would you trust someone to implant when we're talking about where do your ideas and thoughts come from? Would you trust someone to implant your future? You know, I think it's it's fine if you've got someone who is balanced and dealt with their psychology. Well, I'd love to meet that person. But if you've got some wrinkly kind of like a old crystal ball type psychic who's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, you know, <laughs> and a bottle of gin next to next to the tarot deck. Um, <laughs> would you really want her to tell you whether or not this man that you've just met is going to marry you? Because she's probably a little bitter, you know, so... Um, <laughs> 
I just don't want her to tell me that I'm in grave danger. (laughs) And you know, and they do, you know, and and they come out with something. I've had to undo so many people who've been really terrified by some of the future predictions that they've been given. And I think even with the best will in the world, you can can make mistakes like that. Um, And so what I I really enjoyed the stage and platform work but I found that I was just funny and I think that when you're looking at personal development and anything around transformation the more you can laugh the more you can shift because it's a bit serious and I'd say you know personal development is a multi-million dollar freaking industry and half the time a lot of it is pain poking that sometimes I can read a book and I'll like a self-help book and it literally is more like a long ongoing advert for somebody's course, you know, that they never really get to the point of, they're talking about the problem, but they never really get to the point of the solution. And it's like those long elongated webinars that upsell you, a, a, um, you know, something else, you know, a program or something. And, um, and I think for me, if you can really laugh, if you can look at yourself and, and get those pain points and transform them through um, laughing. I mean, I'm never laughing at my clients. We're always laughing with. And so the stage so kind of just popped out quite naturally from doing, um, you know, co- consultations and doing stage performances. And also it did help. I used to share a flat with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Um, and they, they wrote a sitcom called Spaced, which there were huge chunks of things I actually said <laughs> in, that, in that sitcom. And of course, they've gone on to, to do lots of, you know, um, big films like Shaun of the Dead and things like that. And Simon, I think, has written parts of Star Trek and Star Wars. And so they've done really well. And I remember really thinking, oh, it's really difficult to become a famous comedian. Are you sure that you want, want to take this career path? And I think about that when I'm standing at the bus stop and their pictures are on the side of the bus. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I think that my, my stand-up kind of came from my uh, stage management background um, and my desire to make people happy. And, I mean, that, that kind of became part of it. And so I've actually started doing the show on Clubhouse now. So um, I dropped the word psychic a while ago when I, when I went into studying neuroscience and realised that anyone who has, is on the dyslexic spectrum um, usually has a high level of intuition. And um, that's because they're more leaning towards the right hemisphere. And I know that the brain's quite complicated. Anyone who tells you they can understand it is probably lying. Um, but um, in the same way that if you're autistic, you can remember dates, names, detailed uh, uh, orientate, uh, orientated um, information, but maybe not that great with eye contact. Whereas people who are dyslexic are the opposite terrible with remembering dates names numbers you know spelling uh but really good with reading a room and reading people and so because of that i thought well there isn't a psychic as such because that make that the idea of psychic in in the uh, definition of the word is to have supernatural powers that nobody else has i want to i really want people to understand that everybody has the same skill as any psychic i've ever met um, and through doing that, that we go back to the empowerment, through letting people know that, um, then we can start trusting ourselves and we start trusting our own level of intuition. Um, so I've called it the Stand Up Intuitive Show instead of the Stand Up Psychic Show. So I just changed the name, um, but it's still pretty much exactly the same as it ever was. <laughs> I love that idea. It, 
you know, you're not up there doing Lenny Bruce and that's fine because you're you, you get to do you. But Becky, when you do a show like that, I would think, and we, we haven't talked about the degree of interaction, but it seems to me you have a great opportunity to talk to an audience that can give you feedback so that it becomes a kind of conversation about anything you and they decide it will be. It, it's really intuition and perhaps even comedy by consensus. It's a dynamic live conversation. That's thrilling to me. It's just brilliant. And you know, sometimes the most frustrating element about it is that the audience are funnier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that happens. happens. Times. <laughs> because it's not often, because in a comedy show, you might get a heckler, um, you know, and then the comedian usually says something about their mother or something. And, um, but within this, the, the person I'm talking to can be just as funny, if not funnier than I am. And actually the conversation that other people are, are hearing is so much more enjoyable. So I, I don't even know, I was pondering this the other day about, is it stand-up? But what else can I call it? Because you understand stand-up, you know, that it's one of those words that you, you kind of know that that's comedy. Um, so yeah, so yeah, comedy meets personal development. But um, people can give the great, greatest advice. And on, and on Clubhouse, you can have other moderators as well. So um, I do also cherry pick people who I, I also, I, I know are really good practitioners. And so then that gives me the opportunity to allow them to work as well. So it isn't just my opinions all of the time. So it really is a very interactive kind of platform for, for something like this. Although when they've got the mute button, I, I can't hear them laughing. So sometimes it is a little bit like, you know, I don't know if I'm funny, <laughs> but, you, you know, well, that joke worked before, but, you know, but people kind of flash their mics so that you can see that they're applauding. So it's a whole new, it's a very new platform and uh, still figuring it out. What I really like about what you said uh, earlier, I, I made a note about um, intuitives um, being very serious and the people who are receiving the messages also being very serious that this is serious business, this isn't funny business. And yet, don't we always learn better when we're laughing, when we're laughing at ourselves, when we hear somebody else making fun of themselves? Those are our very best comedians. And it points out our foibles without being attacked. It, it points out the human condition and, and what we all do that's screwy. And it allows us to laugh at ourselves. And what a better opportunity to change rather than, well, let's look at this topic very seriously because, and then all of a sudden you're digging deep into those wounds. But if you can, if you can laugh at all the stuff that has happened to you, and I've told a couple of stories about things that were horrible, but laughable at the same time. And so, you know, you can, you can heal, I think, a whole lot easier laughing at something that, than you can at crying about it. Uh, or maybe both ways are valid. I don't know. I think both ways are definitely valid. But here's the thing, you know, we hang on tight to our stories, you know, and we hang on tight to our limiting beliefs because a limiting belief will always have a plus side. A limiting belief just means that you don't have to necessarily be incredible in the world. You know, so um, if you want to be a little bit lazy, definitely surround yourself with victimhood. You know, so so I think that there's we get attention in victimhood. 
And so people will quite happily kind of regurgitate and retell their story without any desire to kind of actually be fixed. So whoever is fixing them can't fix them from that place anyway. Um, but also, I don't think anybody really likes being told what to do. I mean, I didn't like it as a child and as an adult, I don't think I do either. So what we want is we want to be listened to. We, we, want, to, we want to be acknowledged, seen, understood and loved. And to me, I think that that's it. It's about using humour to, to say, I, I hear you, I see you, I love you, but I'm not buying into this. You know, because if, you, <laughs> if, if I buy into it and you buy into it, you're going to stay stuck, yes. you know. So if we both buy into the seriousness of this traumatic situation, you'll stay traumatised. But if we can, you know, and I'm not talking about big T traumas, you know, um, right. I don't think we could really kind of like laugh off PTSD. But I think that the, that the smaller traumas, the limiting belief traumas, the I'm not good enough traumas, I think that you can go, oh, come on, what's that? Really? Okay, so here's how you're good enough. And here's this, and here's this, and here's more evidence and more things about you that are incredible. And then the person starts to go, oh, yeah, but it's not like, let's dig deep into um, how awful this has been for you and how difficult this has been for you. Because um, unless you want to have like a client for six months to six years, and then you make a lot of money out of those people, and, and that does really get my goat, which is you can change the, the course of your whole life through changing your perception and you can change perception in one conversation. So why pain poke someone so that you can make sure that they sign up to a six month course of therapy with you when yeah. actually they could be done and out of the door within the first session. And, and we have layers. They will come back. I've got clients that have been coming back to me for 20 years. I found something else. <laughs> okay, let's dig this, you know. But um, yeah, I, I, I just think life's too short to spend too much time swimming in the water of your own navel. Wow. And imagine all the fuzz you'd collect. Exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've been meaning to ask you this for years, Becky. Are you an innie or an outie? I'm an innie. Any, I'm an innie. I'm an innie. You're an innie, aren't yes, you? Yes, I am. Let's, and uh, Benny, are you an innie or an outie? He's, he's not God. there. He's not. Okay. We'll find out when he comes back. Won't he be surprised? He's in the bathroom checking. He's looking at his navel right He's gazing at his navel. <laughs> Do you have any plans to come back to America? Hey, 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 hey. I heard that. Okay. No, so, I was not in the restroom, and I am an innie. Uh, he is an innie. Okay. Just to confirm, everyone, because I know they were there on we bated go. breath. <laughs> this, this is an oppressive unanimity, and we must address it. <laughs> we would love to have you come to America. Certainly, Seattle would welcome you back. You made a visit there, and you really got the lay of the land. So in that context... What about it? Coming back to America, seeing Seattle, perhaps seeing San Francisco and the changes that have happened over the years since you actually lived there. I did. And I, I would love to. And I think um, I, I made a decision. I don't know. Um, uh, I, th I think. Uh, did you meet my dog? No, I don't think you did meet my dog. But um, uh, my, when my dog passed away, sort of like about a year and a half ago, uh, nearly two years, it'll be two years in July, um, I was like, right, that's it. Um, I, I'm going to go traveling. And then, and then COVID happened. And then I was like, yeah. Uh, and then 
I couldn't handle the house without a dog. So I started fostering dogs that were coming to the UK from Romania and, and Bosnia um, as they were being rehomed or some homes didn't work out and then I was given the dog. So I fostered about six dogs and uh, over, over that time period. And of course, I kept one. Yeah, <laughs> so, I was um, waiting for that. <laughs> yes, of course. So at the moment, um, because uh, Buddy's quite, I, I kept his name Buddy, that was his original name, uh, um, because he's quite traumatised. We've got him to the stage now where he's, um, my mother lives five, mile, uh, five uh, hours away, um, but she's really great with dogs. So I just went to visit her and she was very comfortable with her and in her home. So that's actually given me the opportunity now that I can travel because Buddy, before wouldn't let anyone else pet him and he just howled when I wasn't with him so now now I've got Buddy settled so that I could go away I I would love to but I think if I came this time I would want to come and spend a month and really travel around I've got some great friends in America and I I would really like to travel and um, and again I I would like the Covid situation to be a little calmer because I don't want to be traveling around as a super spreader or anything like that so uh, you know and well from one airport to another I think um I think I think at the moment I would probably wait a year but absolutely after that time I would love to do that it'd be brilliant to do that that would be amazing. And I'll have you know that Suzanne is being the interior decorator. She's putting on that hat. We have a guest room to which you are welcome anytime. Give us a little bit of notice. We have to go and meet you at the airport after all. But <laughs> we would love to have you join us because instead of the custom futon that I maintain is certainly serviceable for guests, I don't know about for a month, Suzanne decided, you know what? We need a queen size bed in there and turn it into a guest bedroom. And that is already underway. It's going to look fantastic. So if you fancy a bit of sunshine, come to Florida. And what I would say to any of you who plan to come to Florida, do a bit of Sarasota. I mean, go to Disney World, go to Miami if you want. But if you can get to the Gulf side, come to Sarasota because this is our crowd I'm talking to. Sarasota may be, other than Key West itself, I suppose, but Sarasota is a famously friendly town for metaphysics. If you take the metaphysical view of life, you will have many, many compatriots here. And I think that's one of the great things about living in this town, this part of Florida. You're not judged for it. You find that you have all these fellow travelers. Great. I think that that's wonderful. And, um, you know, I never got to Sedona or places like that. And I always meant to. And, you know, this is the thing. America is just so big. And, and until you're there, you don't realize how big it is. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, I, I um, when we came out of the last lockdown, I went to another country. I went to Wales um, and it literally sort of t it took me two to three hours and I would have been in the water, you know, so that's how it's like, you know, I've traveled to another country and would have been in the water. It, it's a very small place here. You know, yes. So I've, I've done the entire length of Wales. <laughs> when in you, in the UK, the thing that's fascinated me, I have yet to set foot on English soil and Hey, I, Pipe down there. I don't have to hear your jeers. They're so delighted I haven't made the trip no. across the pond. No, They're... but you'll have to have a sofa bed at my place, I'm afraid. But you'd be very <laughs> welcome to it. We can make that work. Um, but when, when I talk to Brits, what they tell me is that they can create some assumptions. And I think this speaks a bit to what we've been saying here in, in part. If they hear an accent from, let's say, uh, 
uh, Mayfair in London, and then they hear an accent from somebody in the Midlands or the West Highlands, they have an automatic set of assumptions about that person's breeding, perhaps their temperament, their education level, their uh, what step they're on on the socioeconomic ladder, and you carry this around in your consciousness. Now, does that seem true to you, or do, or do do Brits say, well, maybe I shouldn't judge them on the basis of of where they went to school 25 years ago, they're living 150 miles from there where it's different here. Oh no, I mean, we're, we're terrible, terrible judges of all of that stuff, really terrible judges. And it goes back to what you are saying about programming. So I went to a school where I was told, you'll be lucky to get a job, you know, do your exams, you'll be lucky to get a job. Um, and uh, a friend of mine went to a private school called Edwards or Teddy's. And they were like, oh, well, of course, because you've been to Teddy's, all doors are open for you. And you walk with a different swagger. So, you know, it, it, there is a different um, sense of entitlement about what is available to you. And you can spot that. You can you can spot that. So and again, I think that we all have like, um, you know, the, the, the Scottish that want to be independent. So I remember being um, I was in Glasgow and I was going to stay at a friend's place that was just outside of Glasgow. Wait, waiting at the train station and ask somebody, excuse me, does this train go to blah, blah, blah? And he's standing by the doors and he went, you're not from around here, are you? And I went, no, I'm not. So I don't really know where I'm going. Laughed as the doors closed. And he went, yeah. So <laughs> there's, there's sometimes um, a bit of hostility <laughs> uh, to, to, towards the English, which sometimes I think is probably deserved. But of course, we've got the Isle of Man as well. And the Isle of Man, you can see they, they call it the kingdoms. Um, so Scotland, Ireland um, and uh, Wales and in England from one point in the Isle of Man, which is quite cool. Hmm. And do people still hope to have the money? I'm, I'm referring now to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. And when I'm 64, Paul sings about that every summer we can rent a cottage in the Isle of Wight if it's not too dear. <laughs> so people plan their vacations. Well, we'd like to do that if we have the money. That's sort of the universal discontent and worry. Can I afford the thing I want to do and see? It's true. Well, we're just having this argument at the moment that we've called um, a, a staycation. Working class staycation was always that you just stayed in your home and took time of work. Um, and now we've used the word staycation to mean that you're staying in the UK rather than going overseas. And there's been an outrage about this. Um, so the, the middle class are saying a staycation is staying in, in the UK. And the working class are saying a staycation is staying at home. And, uh, and this literally ended up being a discussion on the radio because of this time of COVID, people are kind of going, oh, well, of course, I'm not going abroad. I'm having a staycation. Oh, you're staying at home. No, no, I'm going to Cornwall. Well, that's not a staycation. And then this huge <laughs> argument erupts. <laughs> Becky, thank you for visit number nine. It's always a delight to talk with you. And we look forward to the next time, number you, 10. You never know what will come out of our collective mouths. And that's what makes it such a joy. Thank you, Becky. Always a pleasure. Lovely to speak to you both. Thank you so much. All right. Stay tuned. We have the Christine Upchurch show, followed by the Susan Harmon experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Today, Nicole Strickland joins us as we talk about the Queen Mary, the condition that that venerated vessel is in, now under operation by Long Beach, California. What is the future of that marvelous lady? 
Stay tuned to AM 1150 anytime you can. Glad to have you with us. Have a great weekend, everyone. Really?